This is how I'd like to spend all my time. Owning horses, breeding horses, racing horses, it's what makes me truly happy. And I actually think it's what I was born to do until the other thing came along that someone else was born to do, that they elected not to do, which meant that first my father and then I had to do a job we were never meant to do. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and this show will follow the third season of the Netflix original series The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved and diving deep into the stories. Today we're talking about episode five called Coup. Upon the devaluation of the pound, recently ousted Chief of Defence Staff Mountbatten is approached to lead a military coup against Wilson's government. Meanwhile, Elizabeth visits international horse breeders where she gets a glimpse of the life she could have led, where she's free to pursue her passions. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't watched episode 5 yet, please do so now, or very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear from actor Jason Watkins, who plays Prime Minister Harold Wilson. Jason speaks of Wilson's unexpected bond with the Queen, as well as his embarrassment over the economic downturn during his time in office. As a rather brilliant economist, it hurt him doubly yeah. that he was unable to prop up the pound. and So it was a crisis of economics and a personal crisis, and he says that in the scene, you know, me personally. We'll also hear from Head of Research, Annie Salzberger, who'll speak in detail about the economic situation in the UK in 1967, as well as the evolving powers of the Crown. She could free all prisoners if she wanted to. She could disband the army. But she can't, because the minute she does that, it's no longer democracy. But first, I spoke with German director Christian Schoho about his personal connection to the Crown and what drew him to the character of Queen Elizabeth. Christian, thank you so much for being here to talk to us about your involvement in The Crown Season 3 because you are just about to hop on a plane back to Germany as well. So That's right. Much appreciated. Can we go back before you actually kind of started work on it and how you were approached to be part of The Crown Season 3? I have an agent in, in London. Yeah. And um, he spoke to different people in the industry here and... I think um, one day he talked to Susan Mackey um, and showed her a film that I made, um, yeah. a period drama about Germany's most famous female artist. And apparently she really liked that and had a feeling this director could could be a fit for The Crown. And then I had a, a real interview on Skype with her yeah. and um, I talked to her why I love the crown and why it's so special for me. Why is that? I was born in East Germany, so I spent my childhood there. And even though, you know, I was not a victim of um, um, of the system, but I know how it, how it feels to, to live behind a wall. Yeah. And I know how exciting it is to lead a life in freedom. So the character of young Elizabeth, who from one day to the other becomes so powerful but also has to move into a prison for the rest of her life deeply moved me and still does. Yeah, that's my main connection to the crown. 
that's an incredible way to put it, you know, in terms of that personal connection that you have with it and mm. personal connection with her story as well. Because it's interesting because for you, was it your first English language series that you'd worked on? And and also for The Crown, it was you were one of the first non... The first foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but you know, there's, there's, it's, that's a great kind of connection as well and a, and a great story in the looking for that... That vision, I guess, yeah, outside and and also really inspired and and impressed by the work that you'd done um, in Germany as well. So then that happens, and then I met Peter. Then you met Peter. Um, I was scared to death when I met him first. Um, we met at, at his house, which is um, a very nice house. Yeah, and um, we had a conversation, and um, I felt like he doesn't like me. He doesn't smile at me, and uh, he was listening. Yeah. Um, it was a Saturday and I was in the middle of shooting my last feature film. But then they called on Monday and said, come over, let's do this together. Amazing. Yeah. And then how do you work out or how do they let you know what episode you're going to be working on and how that's going to work? I knew it would be two episodes, but it took a while to send me scripts. Yeah. But when I got them a few weeks later, I first got the episode five script and... Um, I was so excited because you could immediately feel it's something very political and it's even though it takes place in in 67 the coup uh, we're talking about in episode 5 it feels so like now in a way yeah. because um you know it's old man trying to play dirty politics and um to kind of to save something they they feel needs to be saved, which is their power, yeah. their money and... History repeating itself almost, yeah. isn't it, in a way? Yeah. It's such a brilliant thing and that's the thing that Peter talks about, is about it always coming back to her. Every episode coming back to her and how she deals with every situation. Yeah. And that constant turmoil that she has between her role as, you know, the monarch and her yeah. role and her private personal role yeah. as a mother as a wife as a you know it's kind of that constant it's never ending this never. pool that she has both ways and she has it with everybody she has it with margaret she has it with her children um with her husband mm. yeah yeah that's with herself um, as well absolutely absolutely mm. i'm really happy that i was able to do this scene with her and her friend porchy in episode five where she's opening up yeah. and telling him and I think she she will never do that um, in other episodes to tell him who she really is or who she could be yeah. um, in a different world. It was great for her and for me to show her being happy. So it's only him, the sandwiches, a cup of tea and two horses. And it's <laughs> this is actually what could make her so happy. Simple life. Yeah, and then the scene where she actually talks to him she says it's this was the most enjoyable day of my life of my entire life but also it's such a sad day because i know it shows me who i am but also who i could be i mean it's such a strong drama and of course it's a it was a great gift for me to to have a story of hers but that's so substantial and allows me to show her in a different way yeah 
I think though as well, Peter's scripts are are incredible in terms of how he's able to to navigate this incredible story that he's telling. These people that we know, we think we know, mm. but he also allows you as a director to really have your own journey with that script, with those Absolutely. actors. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's wonderful because Peter uh, he comes from theatre, so theatre you have to. To find every move between the words and to to fill the gaps between the lines and his writing, his dialogues are brilliant. They were like a big invitation for me to reinvent the scenes or not reinvent, but to to find a lot more and um, to make them richer. And because you, you can always trust his scenes and they will always work. But there's, yeah, I mean, there's a million ways to, to do them. And yeah. I think... I took a lot of time to prepare different options for every scene, and and do you collaborate with the with your cast a lot on it. You know, you talk about Olivia in particular. That scene is it something you talk to them about how you see it and the different options that you have in your head for your vision? yes. But every actor is different, <laughs> and Olivia, for instance, she very often just just asks me, "Tell me how you see it, and I'm going to do it." Whereas Tobias, um, we would call each other the day or a week before doing this scene. And for instance, the end of episode five, after the crew thing is solved, we see them meeting up in her in, in her little drawing room. And they have a little, not an argument, but there's a little bit of tension. And then he comes and he kisses her. So it's so delicate and so. And this was never in the script. It was Tobias' idea. He just did it in the rehearsal. I was like, I think he did it a bit as a joke. But then we we we, we were like, oh my god, this is how the scene has to end. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's, so it's oh, very often it's finding things together. And uh, the great thing about the Crown is that it's not you don't have to rush through the shooting day. So you have time for rehearsal, mm-hmm. and we would talk scenes through and decide which is the best part of a room beforehand so yeah it's so many different ways of doing a scene and sometimes I would even ask Peter before and he would say just do it you're the director <laughs> so there's to, uh, your, the answer to your question is yes there's a lot of freedom mm. those scenes can also have a different life once you get into the edit as well once you work with the music and there's the, in particular you know we talk about this wonderful intimate scene that she's she's having with her friend and this insight into the world she could have had she's taken to a phone call and then there's with the, Wilson yeah. yeah now I feel compelled to remind your majesty the tolerance of the royal family is hanging by a thread as it is now, throughout my time in office I have done my level best to protect you But if members of the royal family were to interfere with the political business of the day, I would be left with no option but to side with the Republican elements of my cabinet, which I have successfully controlled until now, and take steps. Leave it with me, Prime Minister. Your Majesty. And then that walk that she yeah. has back. 
Yeah, that and, was that was. Oh. Yeah, Peter and I discussed about it because he wanted me to 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 cut it a bit shorter, and I, I said no. It needs to be that long. <laughs> yeah, I wondered wanted to ask as well as well how how the themes influence how and what you shoot as well in terms of, you know, with with episode five, the coup. There's it's you know the state of the the country, that whole kind of cloud that's sort of hanging over, and Mountbatten and his involvement in it as well, and whether that influences your approach to how you're shooting, you know, in terms of there's this all this kind of stuff going on on the outside. When I read the script first and then I met with Peter to speak about it, we were speaking more about Britain today than about the story. So, of course, once you know, it's you're not just directing a period piece. Yeah. It inspires you more and you kind of try to... I mean, this is what, what we tried with this episode to make it look less period drama, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. The 60s helped us and we have this, I mean, this Daily Mirror office and I watched our original footage of the time and it was a messy place. Everybody was smoking, there was papers on the floor. It doesn't feel like like long time ago. And so we we made the episode a bit less glossy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we wanted it to feel like it's happening again. And if we didn't, you know, if we don't watch out, there are strange, dangerous forces um, who take over. Yeah, um, it's a bit so. dirty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I absolutely get yeah. that. I love as well because this, for me, is the moment where you really believe the friendship and trust that has developed over time between the Queen and Wilson. When you start the season with this relationship and you go, oh, she's not too keen on him. No. And then as that develops, and in this particular episode... He relies on her. She... He really needs her. Mm. And uh, I think we can feel that even though it's through the phone and it's between London and America, so a big distance, yeah. she can feel that she has to declare a position, a very clear one. And um, that's what she does. And also in a very distinct way. I mean, the scene with Mountbatten afterwards where yeah. he, she's really angry. So it's hard for her to, to hide her anger. I mean, she still finds nice words to him at the end. But yeah, I love the episode because she has to, she has to do real politics. And um, she, she understands how important her role is can be yeah in the beginning of the episode she feels like she's she's useless she has actually nothing meaningful to say or to do and yeah through wilson she understands that she has real power and that she can change politics can you talk a little bit about charles dance who plays Mountbatten and olivia in that scene how you shot that and what the conversations were around that i mean i do remember that i talked to her to olivia about the beginning of this scene and I because we have several shots on her but one is very close and I and I and I said to her before Mountbatten enters no the the second he enters try to hide your anger and play the whole anger with your teeth and um I think you can see that she's trying not to look angry but she has to she has to yeah force herself not to back exactly <laughs> yeah she's amazing and um what i just can say is that charles and olivia had big respect for, um, for the other and um charles went really far i mean it's an emotional scene for him too because his whole dream of becoming 
an important person again yeah. just disappears within five seconds. And he knows it. He knows, okay, now my official life is over. Mm. And he doesn't cry. It was really nice to do this scene because there's so, so many emotions that are hidden yeah. But not hidden completely. It's a great scene because, yeah, like you say, he's expecting something completely different. And within five seconds, he knows, okay, that's it. Mm. That's it for me. I'm now going to retire. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking too. Why are you doing this? Why would you protect a man like Wilson? I am protecting the Prime Minister. I am protecting the Constitution. I am protecting democracy. But if the man at the heart of that democracy threatens to destroy it, are we supposed to just stand by and do nothing? Yes. Doing nothing is exactly what we do, and bide our time. And wait for the people that voted him in to vote him out again, if indeed that is what they decide to do. It's a family drama. This is about people we think we know and the research department is such a huge and important part of it. And also those people who go, well, this would happen, this wouldn't happen. And the want and the need for the authenticity around this world is so precise. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I love it to work here. I'm, I started, before I became a filmmaker, I was a journalist. So my approach is always research, research, mm -hmm. research and trying to understand the reality of my of my subject. So coming to the Crown was like um, arriving in paradise. You know, <laughs> if we have Annie and her team, the research department, they find they can find out whatever you ask them. And I mean, there's so many details people probably will never see. There's a lot of great cars in this yes, episode. Yes, I mean, we had to I had many um, conversations with Eddie, my art director about cars and he showed me different options. It's also based on research. We, they found out what kind of car would Lord Mountbatten have when he's still in charge and what's his private car. So I mean, it's nothing we made up and I think we even knew what Cecil King's car was. So yeah, many Rolls Royce and um, great cars but it's nothing that we made up. It's, yeah. you know, it's what, what history told us. So that's why we have all those cars. In the same way in the episode where Anne is driving in her car with Bowie on the, on the, yeah. the stereo, that tells you so much about her, the world, the period and stuff as well, and kind of what her kind of character is really. Yeah. In the same way that these cars are almost a kind of visual stimulus to something or to a character or a place or... It's clever. Yeah, and I mean, they represent power, right? Yeah. I mean, when the bankers are arriving at Broadlands, the um, Mountbatten's estate, yeah, it feels like like an army coming, yeah, um, like a dark cavalry, army. Cavalry, isn't it? It's kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. the train. Oh, I love the train. Oh, the train. Train was a tricky one. Yeah, train and plane, because both are built in the studio, and to make it look like a real train journey is technically quite hard yeah. um, even though CGI is able to do a lot but um, it's still hard work to make it look like a real train oh see I thought it was a real train nope I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> but uh, I have to tell you Buckingham Palace is also not Buckingham no, Palace no stop there Chris <laughs> <laughs> amazing 
Thank you so much. You're welcome. Next, I spoke with Head of Research, Ali Salzberger, who explains the economic situation in the UK at the time and how that might have contributed to dissatisfaction in Wilson's government. Let's talk about this coup. Oh, yeah. If we can. So, 1967, the kind of political economic situation in the UK is... There's all sorts going on, really, isn't there? It's kind of... It's in a state of unrest, really. Yeah. So, essentially, this artificially high sterling issue is continuing to just wreak havoc. So... Wilson knows that in order to keep the pound, if he's going to prioritize the health of sterling at $2.8, and everything was tied to the dollar at that point, so $2.8, he's going to have to get bailouts all the time. There's no possible way that he can't, that he can keep it high and not beg for money from other countries. Because what he inherited was a deficit. So the UK is importing far more than it's exporting. So they're spending a lot of cash, and they're not earning much cash. And actually, societally at this point, everyone's doing okay, but then they're spending it on more imports. And so it's just like this, the productivity isn't particularly high. England used to be kind of the workshop of the world, and now that's kind of died off. But this is an inevitable thing, that they're going to have to devalue the pound in order to stop begging for cash. It's just not healthy. It's not viable anymore. So he accepts that in doing this, I'm not only pulling back the curtain and admitting that the UK is in severe financial distress, but I'm also kind of admitting that globally the UK is not that important anymore. If it's not a world economic powerhouse, then kind of what is it? Mm. So it's not a decision he takes lightly, but there's no real alternative. It happens. He devalues it. Um in November 1967, by 14%, so it goes down from 2.8, 2.4. And this immediately damages his credibility. And at a time when sort of his government's already under attack for poor employment figures, for wage freezes, for spending cuts, all these things that he's trying to do to not devalue the pound, and tax rises. And then also, there's a huge brain drain of this well-educated, younger group of, you know, this new generation where they're just like, I'm never going to find good work here at high wage. I need to get the heck out of here. Mm. So everything goes tits up. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's the consequences are there's this thing called the London Gold Pool, which one of our researchers, Daniel, tried so hard to get his head around and he did a beautiful job on it. But essentially, there's like a run on gold after that because if sterling got devalued and the, pa- the dollar would get devalued and then gold went up in value. And so... It caused a whole, you know, effect. domino effect yeah. of, of sort of global financial issues, and more panic, I think, than than anything. But it was a real, real embarrassment for him, because it was really something he inherited from the Tories before him. They should have done it then. Yeah. As you know, this government is committed to maintaining sterling at two dollars eighty to the pound. But with every economic blow, the oil embargo, the balance of payments deficit. And the Dockers' union strike, it's proving harder and harder to maintain. And I'm afraid that now we have no alternative 
but to devalue the pound. Oh. And I uh, need hardly say it is a matter of overwhelming regret for me personally. And a humiliation for the government. The power that the Crown has over the government and how through history that's kind of diminished as well because, you know, the roles very much almost used to be the reverse, Absolutely. really. Yes, so if you go back to the medieval times, you know, the, the sovereign was all-encompassing, you know. Um, and when that started to be clearly not very healthy, you had the creation of the Magna Carta. And then I think partly, you know, the creation of the role of the prime minister, which was the first minister under George I, was part, was due to the fact that we imported a monarch from Germany and he didn't know the system very well. So there became this role of first minister and uh, to sort of help translate government to him. And that's sort of when you start to see parliament really, I mean, it had prior to that absolutely become its own thing. But that role of prime minister that we explore starts to become a really significant leader figure. They're now head of the government in a way that she is head of state. Yeah. So it's actually rather complicated because on paper, she has royal prerogative powers. Um, she could free all prisoners if she wanted to. She could, you know, uh, disband the army. But she can't because the minute she does that, it's no longer democracy. Um, it, she's no longer a constitutional monarch. She is, you know, a dictator, yeah. um, more or less. And for her, I think this is very important no matter how bad the country gets, she truly believes that if you want to change it, you got to vote. That's that's our democratic right. It's our mm -hmm. responsibility. She can advise. You know, she might be able to sort of indicate certain avenues that, that a prime minister might want to consider. But she can't really step into that role that has been over the last few centuries Um you know, kind of shorn up as shorn up as this head of state, but somewhat powerless figure. Mm. It's it's a yeah, it's an it's, it's a, a, a very gray. complicated yeah. uh, position to be in. In this episode, where where the the creators of the coup genuinely believe that they they might get kind of almost the backing of the queen in this, because the country in their mind has just gone to crap. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, they see Mountbatten as their way to hard, don't they? Exactly. That's the thing. And They're then, kind of using him. Yes, completely. And, that, and they also see Mountbatten. I think, you know, somehow he was this very forceful representative of, I think, you know, it's a combination of his military background. So he's, he's his own man as a, as a defender of Britain. But also he has this way into the royal family. Mm. Um, and he was really seen by many people as this great leader who didn't really have a job anymore, so why not utilize him? But for him, he knew the hurdle was, how do we convince Queen Elizabeth to, to defy everything that she holds dear? And probably more so than, than most monarchs. You know, she unquestionably would not participate in something like that. And the notion as well that that whole coup as well is, is kind of um, instigated by a media mogul, which is really interesting in terms of where we are now yeah. with, you know, media's influence over government and Absolutely. public perception and all that kind of stuff. It's quite interesting that this looks like it was almost the birth of that kind of idea as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. And 
And a media mogul who was a huge Wilson and Labour supporter until he wasn't anymore. Um, and that was, in all honesty, because he didn't get the, the kind of knighthood, the peerage that he wanted. Sorry, not knighthood. He didn't get the peerage that he wanted. He wanted a um, hereditary peerage that he could pass on. And Wilson would only offer him a lifetime peerage. And that slight Jeez. was almost enough. You know, you combine that with... And by all means, you know, newspaper moguls, they're watching, they're, they're inter interacting with the news in a different way. So they're interacting with what is happening in society quite differently in politics than the average um, person. But he just, I think that personal slight started to really blind him to everything. And it just became about taking Wilson down as far as we could, you know, gather. It's just extraordinary. We don't often get a lot, very heavy political episode because we often, you know, we want to balance it with with the royal family. Yeah. And, and, and it, because Mountbatten sort of gives us a more outsider perspective, but he's still in the royal family, it allowed us to see a little bit more of that culture outside of the of the royal palace. And then you also have this storyline with Elizabeth, you know, in terms of mm. these wonderful conversations and experiences she's having with her kind of, you know, lifelong friend uh, with Porchy kind of thing in yeah. terms of what could have been for her, I guess, if... Yeah, if things have been different. So at this point, we're really lucky in how these parallel storylines happen. She's losing miserably at the races. And she used to make a lot of money from, from horse racing. And, and, and it got her out of the house, <laughs> you know, into the country lifestyle that she wished she had had. Mm -hmm. um, if, particularly if she, even just if her father lived a little bit longer, she would have had more of that lifestyle. Yeah. And... Um, she realizes under Porchy's advisement that things have to change. She's kept on all of her father's staff. They're all, you know, nearing 80 years old. They're going to retire. She needs to sort of go out and look and see how the world has advanced. And finally, I caught up with Jason Watkins about how he approached the role of Prime Minister Harold Wilson in this episode. Episode five, the, the coup. You know, Gosh, it's um, news to me. <laughs> I had no idea about coup. Same. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? And there's, yeah, well, I did a bit of research about that. It's a very compelling, very compelling episode, uh, an extraordinary sequence of events. And he, I think Wilson was my view between the Queen and, and Wilson. You know, he was hurt by it and he shared that <laughs> and angry about what was going on in the background. I don't think he was surprised necessarily, but he was uh, very angry. And, and she, she did end up supporting him, quite rightly. Yeah, so give us a sort of brief history of where we, where we are. Britain's in turmoil, the states mm. in the country, this, the proposed coup. In simple terms, it, painting a picture of it, you know, here's this working class man coming into power you know if you look at Harold Macmillan and uh, Alec Douglas Hume it doesn't feature but I mean it's it's like something in the previous century and there's all that old money yeah there's old money in England and the UK and there's money from the Americans to prop up certain gaps in the economy this huge he inherited a huge deficit 800 million pounds which is an extraordinary amount at that time and by deficit that means the difference between the money we get from selling our goods to what we buy in and it's a huge a nightmare to inherit as an economist yeah so as a rather brilliant economist, it hurt him doubly yeah. that he was unable to prop up the pound. And so it was a crisis of 
economics and a personal crisis. And he says that in the scene, you know, know, me personally. But what happened, I think, really was that, you know, the Americans, they didn't want to support us anymore because Wilson refused to uh, support them over Vietnam. Yeah. He didn't want to fight. He did actually send some, an amount of arms to them. Yeah. But there wasn't that political support that the Americans wanted. So that was a problem. And I think the city had, they were sort of out to get him, really. I mean... I mean, they were. And um, that's not to say that, you know, the, the city has perhaps changed and there's a completely different series of regulations, perhaps, who mm. knows. But, I mean, at that time, there was this old money, bowler-hatted, umbrellas, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, morning suit kind of city sensibility. So this sort of, you know, young, this young upstart, he, was, he looked old, he was grey, but he was actually, you know, in 40s, 47 when he came to uh, into prominence. Uh, so he was relatively young and there he was, you know, um, that they, they despised him and they were worried. Well, this was the interesting thing I found as well, is the, the idea of maybe one of the first times that the media had tried to kind of get involved in politics in a way and, and skew things. I find that oh quite interesting in terms of looking at where we are now. Yes, it does. Ha- it does have parallels. And there you've got, you know, Cecil King, who's the, the head of the Mirror Group, producing all these headlines to undermine uh, Harold Wilson and his government. That kind of behind this, you think, oh, it's all just, it's a kind of conspiracy theory, all this kind of influence of us making us vote in certain ways. But... It, it is extraordinary to think that in that time that there were wheels going on in the background that were very serious in that time that there were wheels going on in the background that were very serious mm-hmm. and where was Mountbatten in all this because the, the, you know they were by all accounts Mountbatten was a fan of Wilson's really wasn't he, he there was a there was not friendship there but there was an understanding yeah I think so I mean it was a shock wasn't it to him to be sacked and that was pressure put on Wilson and he that was a decision that was made and that must have been terribly and that made him pliable in terms of possibilities of becoming a leader of you know and it's brilliantly expressed in the episode isn't it about you know old um, you know colonial the colonial spirit that obviously was part of his part of him and uh and he was Viceroy of India and, you know, he did all that stuff. But I think it's very well documented in the episode that he was not completely convinced all the way along the line. It wasn't something he was jumping at and that it was he knew that it was unconstitutional, mm. even though there is obviously a, a clear a clear legal loophole that he could explore. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and I think that that's, that's what is so brilliant about the Crown is that it explores political events, huge political events from a personal point of view, not just... When actors come in and approach, they're given these gems to explore and yeah. there's the time and there's the resources to do it, do it very well. Jane Lapater, you know, just The scene between those two. Oh, it's just extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know... When, when, warm and humorous and yeah. real and human. It could and, be children. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's like they're, what, 80-year-old people yeah. in this... But they, it could be sort of, you know, 10-year-olds sitting and chatting. Yeah, and he's just come from these massive events. Yeah. And yet he's got a... He has a personal life with his, his sibling, you know. Hmm. The four of us. What? The four of us. Look at us now. Only two left. You're left? Not me. I'm on the way out. Nonsense. 
There came a moment around the time I turned 70 when it dawned on me that I was no longer a participant, rather a spectator. I've discovered that for myself. Then it's just a matter of waiting and not getting in the way. I hear you have been getting in the way. Who <coughs> told you that? There are no secrets in this place. Mm. Did you get a dressing down from our doughty queen? Yes, I did. <laughs> oh, what's so funny? Well, that's funny. The little girl admonishing the grand old admiral of the fleet. Well, I'm glad it amuses you. Because the situation this country is facing is anything but amusing. I think that's one of the things that, that connects the show to people because, you know, they have big decisions. Everyone has big decisions to make and they have little decisions to make with their, with their families. I do like the way it's almost kind of a race to get to the Queen between Mountbatten and, and Wilson in a way, you know. And he, yeah. Mountbatten rings and she's busy and she goes, oh, tell him. And then the phone mm. rings again, she assumes it's him. And just the way that she... Yeah, yeah. It's so great. Yeah, it's, yeah it, it is great. And, but also <laughs> Porchy in that. There's a moment, whatever it is, it's in that room and she's had enough of trying, you know, that, that Mountbatten's you know, badgering her to get on the phone. And of course... In the midst of that, whatever it is between them, you know, we're twisted again because we think it's Mountbatten and it's Wilson. And he says that he, he's aware of it. I mean, it's just one thing after another that Peter is so good at uh, structuring. I mean, that's the thing about it as well, is the tone is so unique, I think, as well, you know. And there's this beautiful moment at the end of that, of, of episode five, between, you know, it's it takes you down one route, this episode, but then it brings you this kiss between Elizabeth and Philip at the oh, end yeah. and you never see that intimacy really between them that often. Well, that's the joy of drama, isn't it? I mean, that's what drama can do. And did they kiss at the end? Of, who knows? But I mean, it is the spirit of their relationship mm. and that's what Peter excels in. It's factually based, but he can shape something to give you a really wonderfully com emotional connection. And what I loved about that moment was it just sort of echoed Matt and Claire's all those wonderful scenes that they have about struggling with a marriage and a marriage, whether it's in the spotlight or not, but yeah. you, you, it was a wonderful echo of that. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's the classic thing everyone talks about in television, that each episode is its own little uh, story yeah. in it, and yet it stretches across a whole series. The Queen almost has to kind of constantly walk this trapeze yeah. in terms of where she lands and re reacts to things. You know, when there's chaos going on around her, she almost, a lot of people would say she's emotionless, but it's, yeah. but it's, it's about her duty, isn't it? It's yeah, I mean, whether you feel the emotion or you, you, you display it, mm -hmm. they're different things, but they were both leaders and could help each other in mm. terms of how you are both a practical practically in your day-to-day -day dealings, either as a politician or as a queen, but also as a figurehead. And, mm. as a, and, and Wilson understood that more than, more than any prime minister, certainly up to that point. I mean, and Wilson was the first person to do that. He understood television, he used it. And, uh, you know, the, the devaluation speech was not, you know, that was the most difficult thing. But, he, you know, he courted the Beatles and he understood that that one's image is important. And, of course, with the queen, it is important. Her image is important. The substance is 
is very important as well. Mm. But there's there are they could help each other in the way that they could be portrayed and do their jobs better, I suppose. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can we sit for another hour and chat? Yeah, I know. It's it's getting into my stride now. I'm Edith Bowman and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Christian Shoho, Jason Watkins and Annie Salzberger. The Crime, the official podcast is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode six, Tawasug Comedy, which focuses on a young Prince Charles as he struggles with who he is versus who his family expects him to be. Isn't there a similarity between my predicament and the Welsh? Am I listened to in this family? Am I seen for who and what I am? No. Do I have a voice? Rather too much of a voice for my liking. Not having a voice is something all of us have to live with. We have all made sacrifices and suppressed who we are. Some portion of our natural selves is always lost. That is a choice. It is not a choice. It is a duty. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts. 